Let's turn together to Exodus 34. On the heels of the golden calf, the Lord who previously said he'd go with his people to the promised land seemed for a moment to pull back. And he tested them. He said, I'm not going to go. Give you all the blessings of the promised land, but I won't give you my presence. If I did, I might consume you along the way. Chapter 33, the people rightly grieved. They really seemed to understand their need for his presence. And we left off last week at chapter 33 with Moses' request. He said, Lord, would you please show me your glory? And our text this morning is God's answer to that request. Exodus chapter 34. We'll read verses 1 through 16. And I'll remind you that this is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up. In the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And you're invited to eat of his sacrifice. You take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. This is God's Word. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we come recognizing that your word is good and beautiful. And we pray that our hearts, which are often hard, and our ears, which are often closed, would be opened by your spirit, and that you would give to your people the ears that we might hear what your spirit says to us. We ask again that you would be willing to use a a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It was my first theology class in seminary. I can't actually believe it's been 20 years now. Covenant Theology 1. Gentlemen, please turn to Exodus chapter 34. This is perhaps the most important passage in the entire Old Testament. It's early in the semester. I've struggled my way through summer Greek. And so when he says this is the most important passage, I suddenly perk up. He has my attention. Where is he taking us? No one's ever told me that this is perhaps the most important passage that's somehow buried at the end of Exodus. And so I'm frantically turning quickly. And while I'm turning, I'm wondering, do other people know that this is perhaps the most important passage in the Old Testament? Have I been reading the Bible at this point for 11 years and I don't know this? It takes us to Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. He made several caveats in order to call this perhaps the most important passage in the Old Testament. But his point is worth considering. That is, God desires to make himself known, but the very people that he came to save don't seem to know him at all. And yet the Lord is not thwarted by that. He is not stopped. He's not surprised by the golden calf. Instead, he uses the golden calf as an opportunity to teach about his character. The reason my professor called this perhaps the most important passage in the Old Testament is because it is God's own words. Where he explains from his own mouth his character. The Lord said, if you want to know me personally... This is who I am. He's already told him my name is Yahweh. He's explained what that means. The great I am. The self-existent, all-sufficient one. The one who lacks nothing. The one who needs nothing. The creator of all things who spoke everything into existence by the word of his power in the space of six days. Everything that they see with their eyes exists For Yahweh's glory and his splendor. But this is something different. It's an introduction to his character. What is he like? If you've ever wondered what the Lord is like, this passage tells you. But this is not an introduction for the sake of introduction. It's an introduction for the sake of bending stiff necks. For the sake of warming cold hearts. God's character must move you to faithfulness. We'll examine this text under two main points this morning. Character revealed and then covenant restored. We start with character revealed. But you need to recognize that if we're going to deal with these first nine verses. And my professor says these are perhaps the most important verses in the Bible. Then we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this point. Remember chapter 33 verse 18. 
Moses said, please show me your glory. And he was asking for sight to see God. And the Lord's answer to him is both simple and complex. Would you like to see my glory? I'll proclaim my name. My goodness will pass before you. Because faith comes not by sight, but by hearing. You remember chapter 32. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He sees the people defiling themselves at the base of the mountain with a silly golden bull. And his anger burns hot, the Bible says. And he takes the two tablets of stone and he throws them down at the base of the mountain. And he crushes them. It's not because he was in a fit of uncontrolled rage. He's making a visible picture. These tablets which have been engraved by the finger of God represent a covenant relationship between God and His people. The two tablets are are simply two copies. The first is the Lord's copy, His promise to be faithful, to be their God. The second copy is for them. These are the the stipulations, these are the obligations that you are committing to yourself. We will be faithful. Everything the Lord says, that's what we'll do. And so when Moses comes down the mountain, he breaks them as a sign. The people have broken the relationship. The people are unfaithful. Chapter 34 begins with a reversal That seems completely unimaginable just two chapters back. Look at verse 1 again. Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first which you broke. If there was any question about God's willingness to forgive, any question about God's willingness to bring His people back, this command says it all. Go cut some tablets. I'm going to put the covenant back in force. For Israel's protection, you still need to stay off the mountain. I am too holy. You may send up one who is the mediator to stand between me, the Holy One, and you, the sinful people. But this is fantastic news. Like the employee who is fired on a Friday. The boss calls him on Monday. You can come back in. Like the first marriage that is broken by infidelity and that same couple over years of sanctifying growth says we now have more sober judgment. We'll walk back down the aisle together. We'll recommit ourselves to one another. Moses did as the Lord commanded. He cut the stones and then early the next day up Mount Sinai to meet Yahweh. Verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Descended and stood. You can tell in the text how Moses is is straining to put into human terms what happened on that day. It's difficult to understand. But he says God manifest himself personally. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't goosebumps down the back of my neck. It wasn't an impression that I had. The Spirit of the living God presented Himself in the presence of Moses in a cloud of glory. And the text says almost nothing about what Moses saw. 
In fact, the only thing that seems to matter is what Moses heard. The Lord passed by and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, when the Lord proclaims His name, He proclaims the aspects of His character that He wants His people to hear in that moment. Don't you wish you could get that kind of clarity from others that you meet? Eric, hey, my name's Oscar. Sorry, well, well, I'm really not sorry about running into your car. I don't actually have insurance. I paid for it the first month, but I haven't paid a premium since then. So I'm going to lie to you today, and you'll not ever see me again. You're going to be on the hook for that damage. Girls, when a guy asks you out, wouldn't it be helpful if he were to introduce himself to you with such clarity? Hey, Sarah, uh, you should probably know I'm incapable of loving anyone more than I love myself. I'm really prideful. I'm generally unpleasant. In fact, you will be much happier if you will say no to me on date number one. Or the contractor who comes to your house to work. Hey, my name's Dan. I make big promises. I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Happy to take your money today. Not going to come back. We would all love that kind of clarity when we meet other people. You have probably never met anyone who revealed their character in that way with such transparency. You've probably never done that yourself. If you're honest, to speak that way would be terrifying. And yet the Lord has nothing to hide. Because His character is all goodness. He has no weakness. He has no sin or failure or falsehood. Moses asked to see God's glory, and the Lord's answer is, let me show you my perfection. Let me show you the, the infinite goodness of my divine nature. In fact, that's what it means to know God's glory. It's to know His infinite perfections. And so the backdrop of Israel's sin becomes the canvas upon which the Lord paints His perfection for sinners to see most clearly. Every jeweler knows if he wants to show you this particular ring or that particular diamond, he's going to lay out on the table a black velvet cloth. And he does that because that's how you can see the beauty of the diamond. It is only in the dark night sky when you get away from town. When there's no lights of the city that the pitch black of the sky suddenly makes the stars more vivid and clear than you've ever seen them before. That's what's happening here. God's character shines most brightly when it's laid over top of the sins of God's people. Some of you may need to remember that too. 
Because you see, God's glory must not simply shine brightly once in the moment that you are saved. But even as you continue to grow in grace, even as you continue to be sanctified, you shouldn't be surprised if God's Spirit allows you to see the backdrop of your sin very clearly. Your thoughts are, in fact, really wicked. Your words really are cutting. Your heart really does devise evil. Nobody goes into the jewelry store to stare at the black velvet. They go to see the diamond. You would not like to stare at the black sin of your heart, but perhaps the Lord is giving to them and to you the opportunity to see His glory and His grace most fully when it's laid up against the backdrop of your need. Yahweh, Yahweh. In the Bible, that repetition always carries a tone of endearment with knife raised over His Son's head. Abraham, Abraham, Genesis 22, Jacob, later in life, he's a little nervous about going down to Egypt, taking his family down there. The Lord says, Jacob, Jacob, do not be afraid to go to Egypt. You should recognize that given the unfaithfulness that brought us to chapter 34, this is a tone of warmth that is shocking. It's actually remarkable. Like the scorned husband who addresses his unfaithful wife with tenderness. I am your Yahweh. I am your dearest Yahweh. But the power and the beauty of Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 is this. The Lord speaks precisely into their need and yours. Seven attributes of the Lord here. The first is this quality of God's character. He says, I am merciful. Some translate this compassion. Mercy in a strict sense is simply not getting the punishment that your sins deserve. But here there is something more than that. The very first thing that the Lord wants His children to hear is, My heart is moved to tenderness toward you. I care about you. I'm actually sympathetic towards your weaknesses. Psalm 103 verse 13, As a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. In your moments of weakness and temptation or even failure, do you think of the almighty God of heaven as one who is full of mercy and compassion? When our children were little, I remember hearing them cry out in the middle of the night. Dad, Mom, I get up and I stumble through the dark house to get to them quickly. I want to get there. I want to meet them in their sickness. I want to meet them in their fears. I want to meet them in their uncertainty. And friends, if a flawed, sinful father like me has mercy and compassion on his children, how much more does the Father in heaven have mercy and compassion towards you? 
can't help but wonder if the Lord doesn't begin with mercy so that you and I learn to feel no reluctance to cry out to him. Secondly, he says, I am gracious. God goes beyond what you might expect to grant favor to you, even though you are unworthy of such lavish care. So if mercy is not getting what your sins deserve, grace is getting infinitely more than you deserve. In fact, that's the essence of salvation. It's not based on any merit. Thankfully, your salvation is not based on your character. You didn't bring something to the table. He was like, well, Eric, well, he's really worthy of grace. No. Salvation is given simply because God desires to show mercy and grace. Thirdly, the Bible says the Lord is slow to anger. One Hebrew scholar states it this way, God's anger prolongs itself. It is not quick to inflict punishment. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about how patient the Lord is with you. How many of us are quick to spout off, to blow your top? God's patience is deliberate. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should be should reach repentance. So how do you treat a patient person? Do you push him? Try to see how far you can go before he really does lose it? The Lord says, no. Do not do that with me. My patience is a, is a glorious aspect of my character. In fact, it's an invitation for you to come running back to me from your place of sin because I'm a patient father Number four, God tells Moses that he's abounding in steadfast love. In fact, the Lord is overflowing with loving kindness. And the word is hesed, pouring forth from this decisive action to love is a long-term, tender, reliable loyalty. In fact, what happens is that God transcends your fickle unreliability by His own faithfulness. His steadfast love overcomes all of your infidelity. So that the reason you have a relationship with the Lord is because He chose to love you this way. He also abounds in faithfulness. That's the fifth one. It can be translated truthfulness. That is, if God says it, he will do it. And so when you or I have moments of doubt, wondering, can the Lord possibly fulfill the promise to forgive me of that particular sin? I mean, this is the 1700th time. What happens is that you are staring at your own character and not at the character of the Lord. In fact, Paul addresses The unfaithfulness of mankind in Romans chapter 3. He says, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true though everyone else were a liar. One pastor said it like this. Since he never goes back on a promise, once he promises to love, he keeps on loving. Some of you have been hurt by people who promised that they'd love you. You must not view God's character through the lens of human failure. God says, 
Moses understand. It's who I am. I'm abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness to the very end. And then verse 7 says, God continues to show this steadfast love to thousands or thousands of generations, which is God's way of saying, I am loving and faithful forever. How do I show my loving kindness and my faithfulness to you? This brings us to the sixth attribute. God is forgiving. Verse 4. In the original Hebrew, this word means to lift or to carry. Freed slaves. The Hebrew people would have understood this image very clearly. God says, just as I lifted the burden of slavery off of your back, so I will lift the burden of guilt off of your shoulders. One Dutch scholar says it this way, forgiveness means a complete restoration of the relationship Because the Lord is the one who has removed the sin-erected barrier between God and man. And then this last attribute. The end of verse 7, God says, I will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, when there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. If you've been through Exodus with us from the start, this is going to sound familiar. God said something identical in the second commandment, chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. People often stumble here. But incidentally, this is precisely the sin that they just committed. They built a golden calf and they said, this is Yahweh. When people stumble here, It is because they believe that the last few phrases negate everything that was said before. Which is it? Does God actually forgive sins? Does He actually bear the punishment for the guilty? Or does He not? And then what's the deal with this punishing children? And so you've heard strange teachings like, well, this is where you learn about a generational curse. Well, it's your family's sin. It's just the one that's going to be passed again and again. That's, in fact, not what this means at all. God forgives sins of anyone who comes with repentance and faith. And so you can come and acknowledge that you need God's mercy. You can acknowledge your need for grace. You can cling to Christ by faith. And God lifts that sin off of your shoulders. He bears the punishment Himself in the crucifixion of Jesus. But when children repeat the exact same sins that their parents had with the exact same lack of repentance that their parents showed, God does not ever clear the unrepentant guilty. Which brings us to this final attribute. This Yahweh is a God of justice. In His economy, sin must be punished. The sinner either pays for it him or herself in eternal punishment, or he trusts in Christ as Savior, and thereby he accepts the punishment that God has already laid on the Christ. In this way, Romans 3.26 God is just, and He's also the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Moses did what we are doing here today. Having heard the character of God, he worships. 
seven attributes of the Lord. But you notice that they are perfectly suited to the very people that God came to save. In fact, all of these attributes presuppose sin and guilt Which brings us to this one attribute of need, which is found in verse 9. Moses says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Now, why would he be asking this same question again? You remember the Lord tested them in chapter 33. I can't go with you. I'll consume you along the way. And then Moses pleads with the Lord. In chapter 33, verse 14 and 17, Yahweh says, I will go with you. Old Testament scholars recognize that what's happening here is something which is very culturally obvious to Moses. It's an ancient Near Eastern bargaining style. Moses doesn't ask for everything he wants all at once. He asks for it a little bit at a time. And yet his appeal is based solely on the generosity of the one that he's asking. It's based on God's character, which makes this a prayer of faith. Lord, you're merciful and gracious and patient and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. That's perfect. Because we're stiff-necked and stubborn and sinful. We're actually precisely the kind of people who need a Lord like you. Why is this passage so important in the Old Testament? Because it's the gospel. A God willing to forgive delivers a people who continually prove themselves in great need of deliverance. This is the underlying theme of the cross. That's the reason that verses 6 and 7 are quoted again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Listen to this list. It's not even complete. Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 5 and 7. Psalm 86, 103, 111, 145. Nehemiah 9, 2 Chronicles 20, excuse me, 30. Isaiah 63, Jeremiah 32, Hosea 2, 2, Joel 2, Micah 7, Nahum chapter 1, and Jonah chapter 4. Do you remember Jonah? God called him to go to Nineveh to preach this Old Testament gospel. And Jonah drags his feet. He tries to run. He tries to head in the opposite direction. God sends him there anyway. And then to Jonah's dismay, the people of Nineveh actually do repent. And Jonah gets mad. That's what I was afraid of. You're the kind of God who's gracious and merciful and and slow to anger and you relent from disaster. God, kill me now. God is more gracious than Jonah wanted him to be. Except that even from Jonah's mouth, he recognizes that he needs the Lord to be that gracious. And so do you. God's character must move you to faithfulness. Character revealed. The rest of the sermon, we should be done by 2.33. Just kidding. Just kidding. We're going to close with covenant restored. That same covenant theology class that I mentioned, that same professor taught us what Israel would have understood by the concept of a covenant. 
They knew in the ancient world that a powerful king would come and he would invade a territory and he would overtake the land. And those little small tribes that lived in the outskirts of his land would be sent an emissary who's bringing a peace treaty. And the treaty would sound like this. Complete loyalty to the king or death. And so it was when Yahweh strolled into Egypt and overthrew Pharaoh, when he systematically humiliated and dismantled the pagan gods of Egypt, the message was clear. The Lord is the king. We must give total loyalty to our king or we deserve to die. And you have to have that background in order to understand the golden bull. See, it's not just a a violation of a peace treaty. It is an act of insurrection against the king, and it is worthy of death. So verses 6 and 7 stand in Exodus 34 like a billboard. You've never seen a king like this. Having revealed his character, Moses, from this bowed position, having heard how vast is Yahweh's mercy, the Lord speaks to him in verse 10, in present tense. Look at it. It's as if nothing happened. God restates everything he said back in chapter 19. Look, I'm making a covenant before your people. I will do marvels. It's not renewal. It's not a revision. It's not a renegotiation of the deal. God restores everything that they forfeited by their sin. And no one in Israel was arrogant enough to think, well, it's because I chose God. If there was any question about who chose whom, if there's any question about the doctrine of election, it is settled right here. You did nothing to earn God's mercy and grace. God does this because it's who He is. There's no other explanation. The Lord receives His glory when He displays the very qualities that we just explained. Thanks be to God. For this entire thing hinges on His character and not yours. And yet the passage ends with a warning Verse 12, when you enter the land, don't make covenants with the world. Don't let your heart be divided. Don't worship other gods because in spite of my mercy and grace, I'm also jealous for my name. Don't sell yourself back into slavery, verse 16, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You see, when the Lord speaks of the divided heart, he uses the language of prostitution. Which is precisely what happened over the next 1,450 years. They sold themselves to the world. Which is precisely where Christ found them. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, it is not enough to hear God's character. You must embrace God's Christ. 
Because God's character of love and faithfulness and grace and mercy is most perfectly displayed at the cross. And yet you cannot embrace the Christ. You cannot see the cross and know His character without also being filled with His Spirit. And if you have God's Spirit dwelling in you, then each time you come back to Christ with repentance and faith, it's actually a reminder the covenant is fully and completely restored. There's no king like this. God's character must move you to faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord God, what a glorious king you are. I pray that you would move our hearts again to repentance and faith. We thank you for revealing yourself here in this place through your word and your spirit. And now we pray that you would receive the remainder of our worship offered through Christ and cause your spirit to place your word in our hearts deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.